everyone, welcome back to another episode of Creep Academy. I'm your host, Ghastly Ash. It has been a really long time since I've created a new episode, and I think it's been around four months actually. And I apologize for kind of ghosting you all, but things kind of went sideways for a while with navigating through this whole COVID stuff, through new protocols for my job, losing friends and loved ones to this virus. My dog injured her ACL. It's just been one giant shit storm after another for a while, but I'm back now, ready to get back to telling cool stories about the spooky things we all get excited about. So I kind of just gonna jump right in here um apologies in advance if you hear any weird noises from the traffic outside or from my dog laying right next to me or anything like that because this is kind of a new setup that i have in this new apartment and i don't know what you're going to be able to pick up and what you're not so for now sorry (laughs) anyway I had planned on doing this episode on a completely different topic, but when I began reading about this one randomly, I got kind of so excited about it that I wanted to bump this one up in the queue a bit. Mostly because I actually had no idea until very recently that this story was actually based on true crimes, and I got really, really pulled into it. So without further ado, I wanted to chat a little bit about the real-life murder and pretty horrible history that inspired the story of the movie Candyman. Though I'm positive that almost everyone listening to this podcast knows the premise of this movie, I'll explain it a little bit just in case you haven't. Candyman was a horror movie that was released in the 90s starring one of my very, very favorites, Tony Todd, and it's about a vengeful spirit of a black artist who was lynched for having a relationship with a white woman. And the plot of this movie is basically that Candyman is thought to be this urban legend passed along by kids, kind of like Bloody Mary, where if you say his name five times in the mirror, he'll appear and he'll kill you. In the film, a grad student named Helen, who is doing a story on this urban legend, of course, gets curious and says his name in the mirror and all hell breaks loose. But the meat of the film really is during her research to find out where the legend came from, she ends up discovering the truth behind the Candyman legend while at the same time kind of encountering the more everyday realities of the poverty, police indifference, and drugs, and all of that stuff that plagues the lives of the residents that live in this apartment project called Cabrini Green. One of the stories she hears about is the murder of a woman named Ruthie Jean. In the film, one of the neighbors tells Helen that they thought Ruthie was crazy and then told her that someone was trying to get through the walls and through the bathroom and kill her. She was found dead later and there was a hole obviously in the wall for bathroom. Well, this is where art imitates life in this instance because the story of Ruthie's murder was very real and it happened to a woman named Ruthie Mae McCoy in April of 1987. Ruthie Mae McCoy was 52 years old and was the type who talked to herself and cursed at strangers in the street. She went through much of her life afraid and she was hounded by paranoia and hallucinations most of her life. It didn't really help her that the home that she was living in was a high-rise building in a Chicago Housing Authority project known as ABLA or ABLA. I'm not sure which if it's just the letters or if it's pronounced ABLA, but I'm sure I'll get corrected. But Ruthie lived on the 11th floor of one of the seven 15-story brown Y-shaped towers named the Grace Abbott Homes, the most dangerous of the buildings in the ABLA. The buildings featured dark, malfunctioning elevators, pitch-black stairwells, and crack and PCP attics on nearly every floor. 
unsafe conditions really were lurking in the shadows here. And in a way, it could be said that it, you would be crazy if you weren't constantly looking over your shoulder and being paranoid the way Ruthie was. On the night of her murder, she had just been dropped off earlier in the day at her apartment by a community van that was driving individuals home from an outpatient psychiatric center at Mount Sinai Hospital. During the ride home, she told a woman that she was riding with who was a fellow passenger that she felt someone in the apartment was threatening her life. When the woman urged Ruthie to relate her fears to a staff member at the clinic, Ruthie said she didn't want anyone else involved, which is unfortunate because later that evening, at a quarter to nine, Chicago police got a 911 call from Ruthie that went as follows. I'm a resident at 1040 West 13th Street and some people next door are totally tearing this down, you know? What are they doing, ma'am? Asked the dispatcher. McCoy's response is unintelligible on tape, but apparently the dispatcher caught the gist. They want to break in? He asked. Yeah, they throwed the cabinet down. Dispatcher, from where? Ruthie says, I'm in the project. I'm on the other side. You can reach, can reach my bathroom. They want to come through the bathroom. Dispatcher says, all right, ma'am. What's the address? Ruthie says, 1040 West 13th Street, apartment 1109. The elevator's working. Dispatcher, 1109? All right, ma'am. What's your name? Ruth McCoy. All right, I'll send you in the police. The dispatcher closed the phone call and assigned a 12th district car to answer the disturbance with a neighbor. He didn't report the call as a break-in attempt, and that might explain why the police hadn't arrived at Ruthie's door yet by 9.02, when another 911 call came in concerning apartment 1109. This one was from a woman who said she had been walking through the hallway and heard gunshots from the apartment. At 9.04, another neighbor called to report gunshots and hollering from apartment 1109. Two more police cars headed to the scene. Four officers apparently arrived at Ruthie's door about 10 minutes after 9. They pounded on the door, announced their presence, called for Ruthie, but got no answer. They asked the dispatcher to call Ruthie on her phone, stating, quote, We think somebody may be in there holding somebody, end quote. An officer told the dispatcher over the radio, and the officers listened to the phone ring and ring. There were two more officers downstairs, and they drove over to the project office a block away on Loomis to get a key for 1109, but unfortunately, they didn't have a key that fit Ruthie's lock. Talking with the neighbors didn't help much either. Nobody answered across the hall, and the apartment next door was vacant. The neighbors in the apartment down the hall said they hadn't heard or seen anything. Other neighbors on the floor had said an elderly woman lived in 1109 and had told the police officers that she always supposedly answers the door. However, once again, when the police knocked, there was no answer. One officer said, quote, I don't know if maybe she answered to the wrong person or what, end quote. The officers contacted the project office again, but the janitor said that he had no key for 1109, and so at 9.48 p.m., almost an hour since Ruthie had called, the police left Ruthie's building and the project development without even entering the apartment. So if you think about that, one person called 911 stating that someone was breaking into their home. Two more people called before the cops even arrived saying they heard gunshots and yelling, but they just left because they didn't have a key? I don't know. It's ridiculous. But the following evening, police got a call from Deborah Lassie, an 11th floor neighbor of Ruthie's. 
Deborah said Ruthie normally stopped by her apartment on her way out of the building every morning and upon returning in the afternoon, but this day she hadn't stopped by at all and that worried her. About a half a dozen police officers and four or five CHA security guards arrived on the scene. Their knocks and calls for Ruthie went unanswered. Police officers were said to suggest breaking down the door, and unfortunately they didn't do that because the security guards discouraged them from doing so. One of them raised the possibility of a tenant suing the police if they broke in, and the officer simply just shrugged and again left without entering the apartment. It's mind-blowing, really. And the next day, again, two days after the 911 call initially, Deborah Lassie again notified the project office of her concerns. At 1 p.m. on April 24th, a project official arrived at Ruthie's door with a carpenter who drilled the lock. They found Ruthie laying in a pool of blood, a hand over her chest, one shoe on and one shoe off. Papers, magazines, coins, and most of Ruthie's belongings were strewn around her on the floor. She had been shot four times. One bullet passed through her left shoulder, another passed through her left thigh, A third entered the right side of her abdomen, piercing her liver and exiting the left side of the abdomen, and the fourth and fatal bullet passed through her right upper arm, then entered her chest and severed the pulmonary vein. It turned out that Ruthie wasn't crazy after all in regards to someone entering her home through her bathroom, because what turned out was the building project Ruthie lived in had narrow passages between apartments, which allowed maintenance workers to easy access them when they needed to. But once others learned about those passages, they also became a popular way for burglars to break in by pushing the bathroom cabinet out of the wall, exactly the same way the movie portrayed. Ruthie was only one of three Abla residents murdered in the waning days of April. Two days after her body was found, unknown assailants used a stick and their hands and feet to beat to death a 40-year-old man who lived in the Abla Row house. The killing occurred on a street just two blocks east of Ruthie's building. Three days after that, a 25-year-old resident of the Abbott high-rise ended an argument with a 20-year-old resident of Ruthie's building by plunging a knife into her chest. And that's not the only instance in which Candyman gets real-life horrors right. As I stated a little bit earlier, the movie takes place in a housing project called Cabrini Green, and for those who are not residents or familiar with Chicago, that's not a made-up name or a made-up place. It was a real housing project in Chicago until around the year 2000 when they began demolition on the entirety of the housing projects, and the last building was torn down around 2011. Cabrini Green, like the Abla homes where Ruthie McCoy had lived and died, was built to house thousands of black Americans who had come to Chicago for work during the war and, of course, to escape the terror of the continued awful conditions from the Jim Crow South during the part of the Great Migration. The apartments at the time boasted modern amenities to entice the individuals to live there, like gas stoves, indoor plumbing and bathrooms, hot water, climate control, all of that kind of stuff that would make tenants of the time want to move there. This early promise had actually held out for quite some time, and the homes appeared in television shows like Good Times as a model of great standards of living at the time. Unfortunately, as has happened many times in our history, Racism-fueled neglect of that housing project by the Chicago Housing Authority, which ended up transforming Cabrini Green into a horrible place to live. By the 1990s, 15,000 people, almost all black Americans, lived in that dilapidated buildings that were falling apart, not up to code, and rife with crime resulting from poverty. Around the time Candyman premiered in 1992, a report revealed that only 9% of Cabrini Green residents had access to paying jobs. 
The rest relied on paltry assistance grants and many turned to crime in order to survive. Similarly, the troubling trend of violence against black men, and particularly those who formed relationships with white women at the time, set the stage for another true and crucial plot point in Candyman, and that's the tragic villain's origin story. In the film, black artist Daniel Robitaille falls in love and impregnates a white woman whose portrait he was painting back in 1890, but sadly, upon discovery, her father hires a gang to lynch him, saw off his hand, and replace it with a hook. They then cover him in honey and let the bees sting him to death, and in death is when he became Candyman. The timing is a very important detail to note in this instance because in the late 19th century at the time, lynchings had become increasingly more popular and common as the years had passed. In 1880, for example, lynch mobs murdered 40 black Americans. By 1890, the year cited in the movie as the start of a Candyman legend, that number had more than doubled to 85, and those were only the recorded killings. Even the world-famous boxer Jack Johnson, upon marrying his wife, a white woman named Etta Dorea, I don't know if I'm saying that right, sparked violent opposition at the time, and a second marriage later to another white woman resulted in Johnson being jailed for years. In addition to the social treatment of black Americans helping to form the legend behind Candyman, one more story helped out to round out that inspiration, and that's the biblical tale of Samson. In the Book of Judges, the Philistines rule Israel. Samson takes a Philistine wife, crossing racial lines, and notably slays a lion in whose belly bees produce honey. This influence can be seen, obviously, in Candyman's swarms of spectral bees and in references to sweetness throughout the film. So, although the actual figure of Candyman himself is not real, the tragic stories that helped Clive Barker and Tony Todd bring the character to life on page and on screen very much were. At least... Obviously, Hope is not real because I've said his name like 20 times by now, but in truth, the character really does draw on genuine historical violence, myths, and stories like those of Ruthie McCoy and countless others to reveal the pain and suffering that was experienced by millions and the fears that those experiences inspired. Well, that's it for this episode. I know it's kind of short, but, um, you know, jumping back in both feet, gotta get warmed up again in a way, but don't forget to leave your reviews wherever you're listening to this little podcast and make sure to like and follow on Instagram at Creep Academy Cast. Or if you guys feel inclined, it's kind of boring, but my personal Instagram page is at The Ghastly Ash if you guys feel like following me there too. If you have a story or a snippet that you'd like me to dive into in the future or if there's any events you guys are looking forward to for a extra credit episode that's going to be coming up you guys can dm me or comment on a post or email me at creepacademypod at gmail.com that's it guys see you later